I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, whether it's on iTunes, Spotify, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss future episodes. Guess what? This week we're going to talk about Brexit, but we'll try and talk about some other things as well. Delighted to be joined in the studio by Rachel Sylvester, the Times columnist, talking about Theresa May's obsession with immigration. Joining us live from our office in Scotland, Times Scotland columnist Kenny Farkerson on his trying to get some straight answers out of John McDonnell. But first, here to explain to us what happens if, although probably when, Theresa May loses her big vote next week. This is Times political correspondent and author of the Brexit briefing email, Henry Zeffman. Let's start here. The meaningful vote on Theresa May's Brexit deal will not pass. So what then? I don't know. There are roughly five endings. May's deal, another deal, no deal, a referendum or an election. But the paths to get to them are myriad. MPs might be blasé about the rubbishness of the Prime Minister's deal, but they should not be blasé about the imminent constitutional crisis. Now, to go slightly behind the curtain of how journalism works, Henry, I've seen you sitting in the office with a large A3, it started out as an A4 envelope and it quickly became an A3 envelope, you trying to sketch out what happens after we assume the meaningful vote gets voted down by MPs. There's no... First of all, is there any possibility at all that she gets it through? Uh, we shouldn't discount it. I think that's the lesson of the last few years in British politics, <laughs> but it does seem uh, deeply unlikely. It would it would rank alongside the Brexit referendum and Trump's victory for <laughs> things we all assume. Uh, were, genuinely were unlikelier at this stage. Yeah. Uh, so, fine. Um, MPs vote it down. We assume by between 50 and 100 Tory rebels, possibly, possibly fewer... And then just sketch out for us then what you think are the things that might happen in the the sort of following couple of days. So as you say, I did sit down uh, in our porter cabin in Westminster the other day uh, with quite literally the back of an envelope and try and sketch out what might happen next. And I thought superficially, oh, okay, well, this is relatively straightforward. If this, then that, then this. And suddenly uh, I was overwhelmed by uh, my artistic and design skills are not not brilliant. Uh, And uh, there were lines going in all sorts of directions between boxes of all sorts of shapes and sizes. I think the key question straight after the vote falls, as we expect it will, which is next Tuesday around about 7pm, is whether Labour call a vote of no confidence. Uh, and that's one of two uh, ways in which the word confidence will become very important that <laughs> night and the next day. Labour might call a vote of confidence in the government. Now that requires a simple majority of MPs to vote for it. And if they do, then 
the government falls. Separately, and perhaps even simultaneously, the Conservative uh, confidence procedure in Theresa May's leadership of the Conservative Party rather than the country could spiral quite quickly. And this is the famous 48 the letters. The famous 48 letters, uh, which Sir Graham Brady has uh, in a... Well, he do- famously doesn't have 48 letters. <laughs> uh, he has a number of some indeterminate uh, size, uh, perhaps even in the 20s, uh, in a filing cabinet somewhere. I just want to just interrupt, just because I've just remembered an MP told me this uh, only yesterday at Westminster. The latest conspiracy theory is that the letters have all gone in, but Graham Brady thinks they're Christmas cards and has got them on his mantelpiece because he's waiting to open them closer to Christmas. <laughs> and, and hearing that listener, don't you feel so confident in the mental faculties of the MPs deciding <laughs> what will happen with Brexit? Anyway, sorry, carry on. So, uh, if Theresa May loses either of those procedures, uh, she goes. Specifically, if she loses the confidence vote procedure, the government falls. I don't think the 48 letters will be hit. After all, it is baked into the calculations in Westminster at the moment that the deal will fall. So why, as an MP, would you then be motivated after seeing the deal fall to suddenly go, OK, this is unsustainable? Separately, I think she's more likely than not to succeed in the confidence motion of the whole House, although that is less likely and the DUP obviously become very important because this is a minority government. So what might Theresa May's gambit be? Well, the most likely thing she will do, I think, rather than proceeding to a second vote just without a change, uh, as we previously thought might happen, is that she will say, OK, I've heard the will of the House of Commons. After all, Brexit was about returning sovereignty to this place, and I'm going to go back to Brussels Uh, in two days' time, because a European Council summit, a regular summit of European leaders, begins on the Thursday after the vote, and I'm going to ask for changes. Well, okay, but as she keeps telling us, pretty truthfully, this is about as good, or this is about the deal that you can get from the EU. So what happens after that? Well, the EU might say yes, in which case she might be able to come back with some cosmetic changes and hope that buy off enough rebels, but they might say no, in which case she might come back and say, look, I've shown you this really is the only deal. And isn't that more likely that they look up and say, oh, it's you again, I thought we dealt with this. What did you not understand, no, uh, last time? You know, because it's only, what, two weeks after she was last there? Yeah, I think it probably is more likely. At which point she comes back and hopes that, and bearing in mind this is perilously close to MPs' Christmas holidays, and she hopes that uh, as, you know, snow is falling and no-deal contingency plans to turn motorways into car parks are being triggered, uh, she can say to MPs, look, really, 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 are you not OK with this? And that's where the question of the size of the defeat on the initial deal comes in. Because if she loses by, say, 40 votes, or or indeed if there are uh, 30 to 40 Tory rebels, she will be not confident, but she will be optimistic about her chances of buying them off. But if she loses by more than that, you start to really struggle to see... I mean, you can't give all of them a knighthood like John Hayes. And bear in mind that Sir John Hayes is not voting for the deal. He's back the knighthood and returned to the Brexiteer furrow from, from which he came. So it is kind of very hard to see what happens. I mean, that's, that, that's the long and short of that ramble, the long of that ramble. So I suppose the first thing, Kenny, is that while Henry's been talking, I assume you've been sketching out your own mind map. <laughs> In, Absolutely. <laughs> in Edinburgh. Yeah. To, you, you know, we've got a completely clear idea of what's <laughs> going to happen. You know, we hear a lot about the landing zone that, 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 that Theresa May has to find to, to bring to bring the, the party into land on Brexit. Well, you know, the Labour leadership itself needs to find its landing zone too. You know, if you think back to the Labour conference back in September, party was in a complete mess on Brexit. We had union lefties at war with momentum lefties and Len McCluskey saying, you know, telling Corbyn you couldn't have a second referendum that gave people the option of remaining in the EU. You know, and Corbyn and McDonald need to find 
a landing zone that all the factions can sign up to. And, and there's there's similarities between Corbyn and May here. I think Henry might accept is that you know both are hoping the circumstances will force the doubters into line. You know, there's two questions you can say to your party in circumstances like this. One is, what do you want? What's your favoured outcome? And the other thing you can say is, you know, what is the way forward right here, right now, in these constricting circumstances that's going to get us through to, to where we need to be, rather than what our preferred outcome might be? Both parties are trying to do that to their MPs at the moment. Rachel, part of what Theresa May has been trying to do is to paint all of the other options as just not viable, including any harebrained scheme that Jeremy Corbyn seems to think he could get by just going back to Brussels and asking more nicely, maybe in French or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the She's been trying to shut down all of these alternatives, but the row that's blown up this week over being found in contempt of Parliament and not releasing legal advice, it's sort of muddying her plan in that it was supposed to be all, nothing else, take it or leave it. And I think what we're finding out is the Prime Minister is not in charge of this process. So she may have as many strategies as she thinks are going to happen about going back to Brussels, trying to get another deal. But that depends on the other EU nations but also in the House of Commons she's not in control the MPs are in control it is take back control for Parliament and I think that's what's fascinating about all of this that you've got a Prime Minister trying to get through the biggest change the country's seen since the war but she isn't in control of what happens Uh, and the MPs are completely divided and I think there might be a majority in the House of Commons for some sort of softer Brexit the Norway model but there is certainly not a majority for that in the Tory party And, and it would be impossible for Theresa May to go for that option having set herself so clearly against any kind of free movement so out of all that chaos that's where I think you might well end up with another referendum because as the you know the MPs you know Theresa May's lost control the MPs can't agree okay the only way out of this sort of roadblock impasse if you like is to give it back to the people to decide. Agree with Rachel that out of chaos anything could emerge I nevertheless there is a sort of brute legislative fact that a referendum needs to be proposed by the government you can't pass a referendum through a sort of backbench motion it needs primary legislation and primary legislation gets proposed by the government so I think you need the government to fall first or Theresa May of course to want to put her deal to the people which is not. What if a majority of MPs after out of the chaos out of you know all the options had fallen at the end of that process a majority of MPs voted for another referendum and I've certainly spoken to ministers who are still in the government who would resign to support that if they felt it was a choice between that and no deal. So then it's a question of whether Theresa May or whoever is the Prime Minister at that point should she already have been replaced by another Tory decides to go along with it or says I still disagree. I don't think there should be another referendum. So I'm quitting and we're going to have to have a Tory leadership election. And the Tory party is going to have to decide whether they agree with what is ultimately a non-binding resolution of the Commons, albeit, as you say, a pretty clear indication in that case that there would be a majority of MPs in favour. I mean, I still think the roadblock to a second referendum is not necessarily arithmetic so much as the question of the question. Uh, What what (laughs) are you putting on that ballot paper? I, I can see three things that could occupy the two slots. One is May's deal, one is remaining in the EU and one is leaving without a deal. Suppose you had a referendum between remaining in the EU and no deal or May's deal and no deal. I think the nature of discussions in the Commons makes it pretty clear that any Prime Minister and Theresa May in particular would be incredibly squeamish 
about putting no deal on the ballot paper. I mean, by all means, you know, I think Matthew Paris had a great line in his column last Saturday about the people do have the right to, I can't remember what the phrase was, but basically, you know, vote, vote for self-immolation if they know what they're voting for. Yeah, fine, but the Prime Minister is pretty irresponsible if they put self-immolation on the ballot paper. So if you and also, no, also deal, no deal could end up becoming the sort of... Uh, unicorns have what you like exactly. campaign exactly. that we had last exactly. time. At least so, I do know the parameters a bit more of what Remain and Deal might look like. So suppose that no Prime Minister will put no deal on that ballot paper. So then it looks like a, a referendum between May's deal and Remaining. Well, suddenly you have a pretty unprecedented situation, certainly since mass enfranchisement, where you have a vote that a sizable slice of elected representatives and the general public think is illegitimate in its very conception intrinsically illegitimate because what they think was voted for in the last vote is not even an option this time and that's a pretty unhealthy democratic place to be in now i'm not necessarily taking a view on on whether either of those kinds of options should be put and you could have a three-way referendum although then you'd have to have a preferential system and the last referendum we had before the eu referendum was saying that we don't want preferential voting systems um so i just not have a sort of clearly defined boris johnson wto brexit uh, yes, I mean you could. I mean that, that's a way of putting no deal on the. On, but then on you the do. End, there is a risk you end up in. You know, as we've seen even with who should go on the telly on Sunday night. Y- mm. You know, you'd have the same argument about an actual referendum. Do you have you know Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn's ideas, or do you yeah. also have to have a Boris and a Tony Blair option mm. on the ballot paper? Just very quickly, Kenny, because I'm conscious of time. Nicola Sturgeon keeps coming to Westminster or arranging to meet Theresa May for another showdown. I mean, with all the other, it feels like her her submissions go with all the other big piles of crap that get dumped on <laughs> Theresa May's desk. Yeah, is there any sense of Sturgeon having a role in this process? Do you think? I think she is trying very hard to be uh, constructive here. She wants to be able to say at some point in the future, if she does go for another independence referendum, that she tried every single avenue to try and get a sensible Brexit. And, you know, and she, she actually has, has a lot of criticism from, with, from within her own party for how reasonable she is being here. Now, I think I don't think it's the, the, the dynamic between May and Sturgeon that's, that's interesting here, but the dynamic between Sturgeon and Corbyn, because the, the difference which I find interesting is the difference between the Norway option, which is Nicola Sturgeon, Nor- Norway plus, you know, customs uh, union and uh, single single market union in a, a, in a Norway plus manner. And the difference between that and Labour's proposal, which is permanent customs union and elements of a single market, but without those, those key things that, that Corbyn thinks he needs to have a socialist economy, which is um, control over industrial policy and state aid and things like that. Now, that difference is not that great, but it also includes freedom of movement, which mm-hmm. I think is a, is a non-negotiable one for Nicola Sturgeon. So, you know, Rachel there you know, uh, is, is saying that I think she's, she's right, that something like Norway is possibly the only thing that can have a majority in the Commons at, at the moment. But just now, the two main opposition parties do not agree as to what that the option would be. Let's move on, because as you brought up freedom of movement and the position on immigration, if we, let's zero in on one of the, the key things, which for a long time we were told was Brexit was what it was all about, and yet it's not really been talked about, and it's definitely not going to be laid out to MPs uh, before they vote. Talking about immigration, this is Rachel Sylvester. Theresa May prides herself on being a bloody difficult woman, but on immigration her inflexibility is turning strength into weakness. By sticking to her net migration target, talking about citizens of nowhere and accusing EU nationals of jumping the queue, she's alienated Remainers without winning over Brexiteers. Her unwillingness to compromise on free movement gives her no room for manoeuvre if her deal is defeated in the Commons next week. 
she's boxed herself into a corner and potentially out of a job. Playing devil's advocate for a moment, Rachel, because normally I'm fully on board with the Theresa May's useless campaign <laughs> group, uh, which exists at the Times. Um, if the EU referendum result was about anything, I mean, most people before the referendum did not have strong views on customs arrangements and tariffs and frictionless trade and using max fact technology or whatever. But immigration was a big part of it. And it, surely, if the whole thing is going to be a massive fudge, getting out of freedom of movement is a key thing that the Prime Minister has to live on, isn't it? Well, I think what's really interesting about all of this is the Brexiteers themselves are slightly in denial about how they won the referendum. And I think you're right. Dominic mm. Cummings had that phrase that they took out the baseball bat of immigration and that that was absolutely essential to winning the Leave vote. But now the Brexiteers are defining it as all about sovereignty and, you know, parliamentary power and taking back control in that sense. Uh, and so that makes the politics of this for Theresa May very difficult because she's stuck in this kind of home office mindset really of it's all about immigration and it was about immigration but I don't think it was only about mm. immigration and lots of people the, now the, the sort of purest hard Brexiteers have defined it in their minds about being about something very different uh, although they managed to win the vote by harnessing the public anger and frustration and anxiety about immigration. And actually one of the interesting things, and obviously it's slightly different now because Boris Johnson's not in the cabinet anymore, but Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, the faces of the Leave campaign, are actually incredibly liberal on the issue of immigration. Yeah, although Michael Gove during the campaign made lots of you know, hair-raising claims about Turkish criminals pouring yeah. over the border if uh, we didn't leave the EU. So he himself, and he's admitted that the tone of the campaign was wrong. You know, they may not have themselves published that breaking point poster that Nigel Farage unveiled but they benefited from it and from that those emotions and they sort of played to people's fears if you like rather than their hopes whereas now they're trying to make it all about unicorns and nice touchy feely <laughs> at the time it wasn't that wasn't why they won and I think also just so finally that the, for the Tory party there's a real there's a sort of quite a big split on immigration about is this what it's for you know so it's what 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 was the Brexit vote about but it's also What's your view of immigration? And there's a, you know, Sajid Javid, the Home Secretary, has a very different view to Theresa May. And having himself, the son of immigrants, he talked this week about how he was beaten up by racist bullies in his secondary school. For him, someone said, who knows them both said it's personal, whereas for Theresa May, it's about some sort of slightly fantastical, abstract, green and pleasant land. And it's the difference between the sort of Brexit that should be about being a big open country, open to the world, brightest and best from around the world, and but also low-skilled workers if we need them, and that's what will fuel the economy and all of that. Or do you go for sort of more Trumpian protectionist? Yeah, and that's that split is inherent within the Brexit yeah. camp, if you like. That's the issue. Kevin, um, what do you make of this? I think it is extraordinary that the immigration, which was at the heart, as Rachel says, of the entire uh, Brexit process, hasn't even been discussed yet. We've had all these, we've had 18 months of, of wrangling, and we haven't even got to the core the core element. And, you know, it, it, is, it is the shadow that hangs behind the, the, the entire debate at the moment, because I, I don't think people really particularly care about the minutiae of trade policy. They don't understand it, they're not particularly interested in it. They are interested in, in immigration. 
migration and whether or not there is going to be um, freedom of movement for people from Europe in British towns and cities and people from 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 the Commonwealth and elsewhere. And you know the 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 way that's going to shake down just hasn't been an issue so far. And we've got that to look forward to, aren't we lucky? But the fact that there is no government policy on this is completely ridiculous mm-hmm. actually that exactly. you know we're, we're in this negotiation but there is still no cabinet position There's, the government's delayed its white paper repeatedly over a period of 18 months now and even you know the prime minister and the home secretary can't agree on it anyway it strikes me as sort of bad politics that they don't have an immigration policy because at least if theresa may could make a thing in the run-up to the vote next week of saying this is a set you know one of the things we will be able to do is control our immigration in a sort of concrete way, even if there, even if there was a cabinet row, in she, but she got her policy through, being able to flesh out how immigration was going to be. I mean, there were lots of people who you know voted Remain who had concerns about immigration, but would, but would think at least if we are leaving, controlling immigration is one of the advantages. I suppose the pragmatic counter argument to that is that if they did publish a detailed immigration policy, uh, a handful of Tory MPs who might currently be okay with the deal might find something to object to and then you lose even more votes um, I, I, I surely just, she's in the point now of trying to win over some of the rebel well i mean if you're losing a couple more that's you know worth the risk surely. well no but there is this peculiar fact that most of the brexiteer rebels are not rebelling against her deal on, on the basis of taking back control of the board of borders they're rebelling on questions of sovereignty and all the stuff that as rachel rightly says was perhaps not at the heart of the leave campaign as presented to the public but was at the heart of the leave campaign as presented within and amongst Tory MPs, perhaps when they were looking in the mirror at night. But zooming out, this is all evidence that the Tory MPs who said in the days after the referendum uh, in 2016 that the next Prime Minister needed to be someone who voted to leave were right. And I think the reason they were right, and Rachel mentioned in her introduction some of Theresa May's language, citizens of nowhere jumping the queue. Now, now we've known for ages that Theresa May, despite being Remain, did have concerns about uh, how immigration was being managed and getting the numbers down. But I think in general... And particularly when she made early policy decisions in her premiership, which have uh, constricted her range of action now. She was often motivated by trying to say both to Brexiteers in her party and Brexiteers in the country. Trust me, I really do believe in this. I really am one of you. I can make this happen. Now, if you'd had a Brexiteer prime minister, be it Boris Johnson, be it Michael Gove, be it Andrea Leadsom, as they were the candidates, they wouldn't have had to do any of that trust me stuff. Yeah. Boris Johnson maybe a little bit because uh, even some <laughs> leavers didn't think he was a lever. But 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 they've got the the kind of priors right. They are they are they've got the bona fides. They are Brexiteers, and so you can jump straight from that rather than having to be a Remainer who's gone leave kicking the Remain campaign all over again and saying to the 48% not only did you lose but here are all the reasons why the 52% were right uh, you would have had a Brexiteer reaching out from within the 52 to the 48 saying let me bring you with me on this on this sort of journey for the country so I, I think actually you know, quite apart from the sort of micro reasons for the immigration policy not being published the cabinet splits difference in emphasis between Sajid Javid and Theresa May all of that I think in its sort of broadest terms there is a fundamental problem with having a, a Remainer Prime Minister, which is being borne out in all sorts of ways at the moment. Yeah, we've talked about it on the podcast before, because I, mean, I, I have changed my mind on that. I thought at the time that a Remainer would make sense because they wouldn't be too triumphalist and they'd bring the country together. But actually, a, a Brexiteer forced to reach out to the losers. And actually, one that just got up every morning and said, this is a good idea and I think it's going to work and I think there are positives, rather than... I still think Theresa May's big problem is she's pursued a Brexit which is halfway between Boris Johnson and Philip Hammond and has pleased nobody, not even herself, really. Anyway, let's move on. That's enough talking of the uh, Tory party. In a moment, we'll try and work out what the Labour Party up to. We're back after this short break. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Jolly, joined in the studio by Henry Zeffman and Rachel Sylvester. And on the line from Scotland, this is Kenny Foxon. A few days ago, I interviewed John McDonnell, the Shadow Chancellor, and he set out his thinking on a deal with the SNP to put Labour into power. But he also knows how careful he has to be to keep the Labour Party united as we approach the end game on Brexit. It seems like every time Kenny, a senior Labour figure goes to Scotland, they give a slightly different message on where they are in terms of the relationship with the SNP and how they might work together. And What, what, what was it that John McDonnell told you? McDonnell um, had a pretty clear message, and it has to be a clear message because there's a lot of suspicion about his, um, his position um, in Scotland among Labour parliamentarians in particular. Some of them fear that the Labour leadership is preparing to cave into the SNP and agree uh, an independence referendum. In fact, I was speaking to one Labour parliamentarian last week who who demanded that I elicit um, a, an absolute assurance from McDonnell when I saw him that this was definitely not going to happen. But what he did say was that he he said he was there would not be a deal as he called it with the SNP. Um, the 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 Labour would go into an election. Uh, seeking to get a, a handsome majority is what McDonnell said. If that majority was unavailable, if they were, they would they would govern as a minority government, and they would seek the support of the minority parties like the SNP um, for their program. And you know, it, it's a strong position because you, 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 you know, would Nicola Sturgeon really refuse to support a Labour government? If it didn't play ball on a, a, an independence referendum, you know, would she really do that when the alternative would be? A Tory government, you know, you try explaining that to the Scottish voters that she was um, putting the Tories into power in perpetuity. Um, but the thing that hasn't really kind of figured so far in 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 McDonald's thinking, I don't think, is how this plays with the English voters. This gavotte with the SNP, and you know, we're in familiar territory here. If you if you recall, in the last two general elections, the Tories made much uh, of the possibility of a Labour Prime Minister being in the pocket of the SNP. You remember... I mean, particularly that, uh, Ed Miliband, those posters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, those, those posters, um, the, the, the billboard that showed Alex Salmond and then Nicola Sturgeon with the tiny Ed Miliband tucked in the breast pocket of, of, of their coat. Now, that's a very strong message. Um, I mean, Linton Crosby thought it was the strongest 
Tory message at the, uh, at, the, at the last two elections. And it does have some purchase. But, you know, at the same time, Labour cannot govern without the support of the Scottish Nationalists who have 30-odd MPs in Westminster. It is an issue for the Labour Party when they keep, you know, the official, I think I still think the official Labour plan is to push for a general election first and then maybe think about a second referendum later on. Nobody, I think, certainly if you look at the polls and, you know, trust them as much as you want to, no, nobody thinks the next, if we had a general election right now, it would deliver a stonking workable majority for either party no. to be able to solve Brexit. So you do end up with, you've had Theresa May and Hock to 10 DUP MPs. Labour would have the same problem, but probably with a couple of dozen SNP MPs instead. Yeah, and, and the issue then is what do you offer um, Scotland? Or they, and and the, the SNP, if you ask SNP activists what the price would be, they would say an independence referendum. But I actually wonder whether or not that would be um, Nicola Sturgeon's position. You know, we're not entirely clear whether or not she does want another independence referendum, certainly not at the moment. And whether that, you know, so the, the, there may be other carrots that Labour can offer the SNP that would win support. I mean, it could just be a dollop of cash. We've seen that with the, <laughs> they've worked with the DUP, DUP. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, they, they, they've. I did ask McDonald um, when I saw him last week. I said, you know, is, is this now the price tag for support for a, in a minority government? Is that is there a, a million pound, a billion pound uh, price tag, and would that need to be uprated for Scotland? You know, for um, various, <laughs> yeah, just put through the Barnet formula, presumably, we'll all sort it out. Henry. Yeah, uh, it's it's worth remembering just just on the question of uh, whether Labour would offer the SNP a second independence referendum, the the way a coalition or a confidence supply agreement is formalised is through the Queen's speech. A new government needs to be able to pass a Queen's speech of its programme for government, and the SNP would have to vote for it. At party conference in October, I was talking to a Labour MP who said to me, "There is no way that Jeremy Corbyn could ever go into Downing Street uh, having promised the SNP a second independence referendum because too many Labour MPs." in English seats, a sort of handful or more than a handful of English seats where voters do really care about the union, would be able to vote for it. And in fact, this MP said to me that they would go so far in a general election as to put on their leaflets just somewhere in the sort of little corner, I will never do anything to compromise the integrity of our precious union. Because then they can say to Jeremy Corbyn, uh, should he think about promising that to the SNP, <laughs> look here, I told my voters I won't do anything to compromise the union, so I can't vote for this Queen's speech. So there's not just the question of whether Jeremy Corbyn would be willing to offer it, but the question of whether, if that is the price for the 30-odd SNP votes, you lose even more uh, on the Labour side. So as I, I, that, I suppose I agree with Kenny that, that it would have to be some other carrot. I mean, that, that, that is a very principled position, but there's also a, a far more practical position, because why would Jeremy Corbyn agree to an independence referendum, which, if it was successful for the SNP, would result in denying him the <laughs> Scottish MPs that were supporting his administration? Yeah. It, would be, it would be classic turkeys and Christmas. Kenny, during the interview, you also tried to try to wheedle out of him the, the, one of the sort of fascinating, for, for those of us who occasionally want to think about politics other than Brexit, the relationship between Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell and the tensions which seem to exist there and their ability to say different things on the same topic is, is one of the sort of fascinating things in Westminster, which doesn't get reported on a huge amount, but it is still there and, you know, if they did find themselves in government, it would become a real thing. Did, did you manage to, to get under the bonnet yeah, of that? I did. I, I, saw, I saw the two of them in, in the corridor together talking and um, I was struck with how 
awful Corbin looked. Um, Gray, which is before Prime Minister's questions and kind of harassed, and uh, McDonnell had this kind of was relaxed and and and, and chatty. I did I did ask in, in that kind of mischievous way that we do like to ask these questions in interviews. I said, look, you know, are you the brains of the operation, Mr. McDonnell? And uh, he he demurred and 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 then came out with a long pain of praise for Jeremy as his friend of a long time. Um, but you know there, there is there is that sense that that Corbin is is the one who looks on while McDonnell makes the, uh, the the strategy calls and um, has the longer view. Rachel, is, are we seeing the, the repeat of the TBGBs, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, a long-running sort of power battle between the two people at the top of the Labour Party? I think it's different because it's not about McDonnell wanting to take over from Corbyn. It's much more mm. about sort of purity versus power, which is the defining split, really, in Labour, rather like the Tories' defining split is over sovereignty in Europe. It's how much are you willing to compromise to win? And do you want to be in government or do you want to retain the sort of idealism of your opposition? And Corbyn is much more on the sort of purity side. McDonnell wants to win. He's a pragmatist. He wants to get into government. He wants to be a chancellor. He doesn't want to be prime minister particularly. He wants to be chancellor to have his revolution of capitalism and fermenting the overthrow of capitalism has been his long-held ambition as stated in Who's Who. And he wants to go on with doing that. So he's winning. You know, he's going around on this charm offensive in the city. You know, he went and talked about his rich tea biscuits that he used to love with <laughs> mum's net. Schmoozing away silver fox in full, you know, charm mode. Um, Actually, his approach is quite Blairite New Labour. I mean, the policy he wants to pursue isn't. Exactly. But the sort of knocking off the edges of anything which is going to stop you getting into into power. Yeah, so, you know, taxes on business are a social dividend. You know, he talks about stakeholder economics rather than Marxist theory. <laughs> he wants to be in government to change the country, whereas Jeremy Corbyn, I think, wants to be in charge of the Labour Party to control the, the sort of party rather than the country. And McDonald's in this perfect position because, he, you know, the, 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 the normal scenario of um, a, a left-wing Labour shadow chancellor going to um into the city and into the boardrooms the, the the normal scenario has been turned on its head he is the one amid the brexit chaos offering stability he is the one who's offering security um investment um he has a, he has he has a he has a um a, a story he can say to business which business finds attractive and then at the end of the meeting, he says, thank you very much, comrades, and walks out. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was talking to someone in the city, and they, they're genuinely discussing what's worse, Brexit or a Corbyn government. And there is a sort of disagreement between this sort of city. But the interesting, the flaw in that is that officially, a Corbyn government would promise to carry on delivering on Brexit. The, the, the idea that the two, we could, you know, we could possibly have both. Uh, there was obviously yeah. loads of interesting um, policy stuff in your interview, Kelly, but by far my favourite bit was the revelation that while <laughs> Parliament is in the grip of a major constitutional crisis, Labour's policy on Brexit is not as clear as it necessarily could be. But the important thing is that John McDonnell has taken up music lessons. Yeah, I, the Times is the place for the big scoops. And, um, so I'm, you know, it's, I was delighted that he was able to tell us that, that he has started learning the trombone. Um, so you know, if, if you're in, not only is he learning trombone, it's it's it's, it's um, his wife has banned him from practicing at home, so he has to practice in the in his in his office. So if you're in Portcullis House and you hear a very shonky version of the red flag on trombone coming wafting through, you'll know exactly what's going on. Um, 
There's he, a... he's, he's getting lessons from um, his, his former agent, who's a member of the Methodist Church in his constituency, is giving him lessons. There's a great line where he says, "I haven't." He'd, he'd like to play the trumpet, but he says, "I haven't got the dexterity in my fingers for the trumpet, but at least I can move my arm." I think if if the only qualification of having a crack at the trombone is his arms move, maybe we could get John McDonnell on the on the podcast. He could record us a new uh, theme tune. Uh, that's all we've got time for uh, this week, I'm afraid. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, my thanks to Kenny Ferguson, Henry Zeffman, Rachel Sylvester, and for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.